certainly want to welcome everyone that has come to be with us here this morning. We have a wonderful crowd. We have a number of visitors that are here among us, some even all the way from Georgia, and we welcome you. And if you're a visitor here today, we would hope and pray you would feel as you are, and that is our honored guest. And we welcome you every time that we have an opportunity to meet. I want to invite your attention to a passage found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We want to read just one verse there in verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wednesday night, we've been studying in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 right now. We've spent a great deal of time on that chapter. One of the things that the great apostle Paul is pointing out is there were many that were denying whether Jesus Christ ever rose from the dead and whether there would be a future resurrection of the dead. And Paul points out that God is so powerful and he is so great and he is so mighty that he is able to create a body that is fit for every environment. Paul said that the fish of the sea, they have a body. The fowl of the air, they have a body. The animals on the earth, they have a body. You and I as man, we have a body. But he talks about the thing that's going to be the greatest thing of all, and that is that which is raised in glory, or the body will have in heaven one day. So I thought I'd talk on the nature of man this morning. We'll talk about what we are now, and the greatest blessings of all, what the child of God will become. The question, what is man? And what is his nature is a question that has baffled man throughout the ages. By experience and observation, we may learn many practical lessons about our physical organism and the working of our intellect and emotions, but such does not answer the question, what is man and what is his nature? Psychology also, and the much talked about psychoanalysis, may teach us much about the methods of the operation of man's spirit but they cannot reveal to us what it is or from whence it came. And so we ask ourselves the question this morning, what is man and what is his nature? And when we do so, we have to go all the way back to man's beginning. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's the New King James. The King James says, and man became a living soul. In other words, in this great work, God did not merely just speak man into his existence. You know, God said, let there be this, and there was this. He said, let there be that, and there was that. And when God created everything in the days that the Bible describes that he did, he literally spoke everything into his existence. Now, we don't want to limit God because God could have spoke man into existence, too. But he didn't do that. He honored the man by creating him by his own personal act. Now, this passage, Genesis 2 and 7, has to be understood in the context of other passages, too. For example, man has three parts. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, Paul said... Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 
and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it only talks about two kinds of man or two parts of man. It talks about his body and it talks about his soul. But interesting, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says there's another part of man and that is the spirit. In other words, immediately and simultaneously when God created man in that way of body and soul... He also created man and gave him a spirit, and the Bible says a spirit within him. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Now, you know, interestingly, when we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, there's a word that we have to clarify. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it's the word breath. I've tried to picture in my mind's eye how it was that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Bible, though, says that he did, and the word breath can be translated from the word, it is a Hebrew word, shama, and it means this, a puff, wind, Angry or vital breath, it can also be translated as divine inspiration. That's a very familiar passage in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we know what that means. We know that inspiration there means to breathe out or God breathed. So it's a generic term that's used in a, in a number of places in the Bible. It's also translated, according to Mr. Strong, intellectually or concrete or an animal. All right, so what's the point? The point is, if the breath that God gave man is the same breath that an animal has, what distinguishes a man, a human being, from an animal? That is the spirit that is within him. One scholar said it this way, he said the spirit of God or the spirit that man that gets from God, that man gets from God is what makes us different from all other living beings. So God created the spirit within him. Keeping that in mind, what do we know about the nature of man? First of all, we know that the body without the spirit is dead. You know, that is so well known and understood that James, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, in James 2 and 26 said this, For as the body without the Spirit is dead. Everybody understands that the body without the Spirit is dead. When the Spirit leaves the body, the body is dead. It is gone. There's nothing left. There's no life force inside. And James would say, everybody understands, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In other words, if we don't demonstrate our faith by our obedient works, then our faith is a dead faith. But he uses the analogy or the example of the body without the spirit is dead. What else do we know? This is wonderful. We've been made in the image of God. Do you ever think you weren't special? Do you ever think that you had no responsibility? 
There was nothing about you that was any good. Some people feel that way about themselves. I want you to understand you are special because you've been made in the image of God. <clears throat> now, what does that mean? We're going to talk about what that means. First of all, Genesis 1.26, it says, God said, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, the us and the are there included Jesus Christ, and it also included the Holy Spirit. And I want to make a point about that, because don't ever let anyone in the religious world tell you different. Jesus Christ was not a created being. Some people believe that, that God created Jesus. No, he did not. I don't know when the beginning was. And I really don't care where the beginning was. And I really don't care that I can't explain this. All I do know is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when all of that was happening, we find that God created man. And in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us, God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, our God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, let's make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth jesus was there too now being in the image of god does not refer to our physical bodies i read something this week listen it was written by a materialist and a materialist said that man is no more than an image shaped out of clay with air breathed into him. Therefore, if you want to have something in God's image, all you have to do is have a statue. What does it mean to be in the image or the likeness of God? First of all, Acts 17 and 29 to the materialist, it says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of that the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. When you talk about being in the image of God, it has nothing to do with physical appearance at all. People have all manner of statues and whatnots. We're going to talk about what God is in just a minute. But he's not that. And neither is man. We're in the image of our creator. What are the points of likeness between God and ourself? Number one, intellect. The spirit knows. Now I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says my, that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our ways are not God's ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's thoughts than our thoughts and God's ways than our ways. We understand that. But understand this, too, that if we're made in the image of God, there has to be points of likeness between ourselves and our creator, one of which is intellect. And no animal or no other created thing in the world has that kind of intellect. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that the spirit knows. First Corinthians 2 and 11. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Isn't that great? Look at this. 
Nobody knows me more than my spirit. My human spirit, the part of my intellect. I'm going to tell you something. You can fake and fool everybody in the world. But when you look in the mirror, you can't fake him out. When you look in the mirror and you look at your life, you can't fake that guy. That guy knows. And sometimes we don't like what we see when I look in the mirror. I may not like what I see sometimes. I'm not talking about physical appearance. I'm talking about examining your life. So when you examine your life, understand this. Your spirit knows. Because that's a point of likeness with God. Intellect. And no one knows God except the spirit of God. No one knows God more than the spirit of God. One of the great things about the Bible. One of the great things about the Bible. One of the great things about being a child of God. Is that the word of God, God's revelation to man, is such that we can understand it because it appeals to our intellect. When the Bible tells me exactly what I must do to be saved, I can understand what I must do to be saved. I can read from the word of God and it tells me what I need to do in my life. The kind of life I need to live. The way that I need to worship God. All of those things is in the Bible. And it appeals to our intellect. How do I know that? Ephesians 4 and 23. And be renewed in the spirit of what? In the spirit of your mind. Romans chapter 12. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Don't you see? Everything in the word of God appeals to our intellect and the spirit knows. No other creation can do that. No other part of creation can have that. What else? What else? Emotion. The spirit does two things by way of emotion. It grieves and it rejoices. In Daniel 7 and 15, I, Daniel, listen to his testimony here. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me. Have you ever grieved? Kind of sounds a little bit like Daniel 7 and 15 when you grieve. You know, there's a whole process to grieving. I don't know everything there is to know about grieving or the whole process, but there's a process. They say sometimes when things are tragically taken from us or people that we dearly love are tragically taken from us and we couldn't plan for it and we couldn't get ready for it and something happens terribly and tragically, that the first thing that enters into the picture, the first part of the grieving process is the period of shock. And sometimes people that are in shock, they show no emotion at all. But then something happens. Reality sets in. And here comes the sadness. And here comes the tears. You know what else comes? Anger. That's next. I want to share something with you. When I was a freshman in college, my best friend in high school was killed. He had gone off to the Marines, and I went on to college. 
and he got sick and he got a terrible fever, he got spinal meningitis and the fever went up to like 106 and it was climbing and he died. And I got a phone call and from some friends that said he died. That was very sad, that was my best friend in high school. Didn't see that coming at all. Played football with him, toughest kid I ever knew. Toughest kid, great kid. Went to his funeral and went through the grieving process. But I remember this, several weeks afterwards, my dad pulled me aside and said, you are absolutely behaving awfully. What are you so mad at? What are you so angry for? It was kind of uncharacteristic. And then I realized, wait a minute. And he helped me to realize that's part of the grieving process. I was angry that I lost my best friend. Did you know that that's a point of likeness? Grieving that you have with God? You know that the Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit can grieve, it says. But also, not only that, the spirit rejoices. I love that. Luke 1 and 7, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now, I don't know how it is with animals, but I know this. I got a point of likeness with God by way of intellect, by way of emotion. And that emotion is either grieving or rejoicing, but there's more. What else? The spirit wills. You know, that's something that you have that no animal has is determined will. I was talking to somebody not long ago and they're talking about how we have will and God's determined will. And, and what does God want for our life and going through all of that. But really, the point is this. God could have created us. He could have created us without free will. And he could have created a whole bunch of robots that would just follow him any way that he wanted. But that's not in the image of God, is it? No, because to be in the image of God, you have to have will. Jesus said in Matthew 26 and 41, when those disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you enter, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 John chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. It says, if we ask anything of God according to his will, he hears us. That word means answer us. You know, we pray to God for God's will to be done. But did you know that you have the same kind of will? And when you're talking about your own self and your own life, you have the same will. You have the same choices to make in your life. And you have the ability to do that. You have the power to do that because you have the will. That's a point of likeness that man has with God. Intelligence is not an attribute of the body. And as I said, the image that we're talking about is not physical likeness, but it is intellectual and spiritual likeness. Now, here's the difference. 
God possesses all of this in an infinite degree. So don't think that we're on the same level with God. Just in his image according to his likeness. God has all that in an infinite degree. Me? I've got it in a finite degree. And that's why we cannot ever say that we know as much as God or more than God. Because we can't. And there's times when we submit our will to God's will. And that's through faith. You submit your will to God's will. And please, you've heard me say it before, I'm going to say it again. Praying according to God's will is not bending God's will toward ours. If you really pray with that provision, you are saying, I'm going to bend my will toward yours. He's got it in an infinite degree. We've got it in a finite degree. All right. What is God? Now, I know God is not a what. It's a who. He's a who. But I talked about the nature of man. What is man? So from that standpoint, I want to talk about the nature of God. What is God? Well, first of all, in John chapter 4 and verse 24, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, he said, God is a spirit. He's a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What else do we know? The spirit does not have flesh and bones. Do you remember when Jesus rose from the dead in Luke 24? Now picture this. He rose from the dead in Luke 24. And the Bible says it was early on a Sunday morning, first day of the week. And those two disciples were on the road to the little village of Emmaus. And Jesus appears before them. They don't know who he is. They look at him and they don't understand his form. They don't know if this was really Jesus. And commentators will write all manner of things as to why they didn't recognize him. I'll not go into that at all. I'm just saying this. They didn't recognize him. But then when they invited Jesus into their home, he made himself known unto them in the breaking of bread. Then what happened? Then he goes back where all the other disciples were, and this is what happens. Watch this. Verse 36 to 39. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He was raised from the dead in a bodily form, a human form. So sure, certainly he had nail scars in his hands and feet. Certainly he did. You know why? Because he wasn't in a spiritual condition. He was in a physical condition. He was raised from the dead bodily and physically and spent 40 days with those disciples before he ascended into heaven. What else? Man is both or all three. Man is body, soul, and spirit. The question is, at death... The spirit returns to God. Now remember this. There are three parts to a man. In Ecclesiastes 12 and 7, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. 
So at the point of death, the spirit goes back to God. By the way, when Jesus in Luke 23 and 47, when he was on the cross, and he finally said when he realized that the last bit of prophecy was finally fulfilled, he said there was one more thing. The Bible says there was one last thing. He said, I got to say, I thirst. So they could take that sponge on hyssop and dip it in that sour wine or vinegar and put it to his mouth so it would fulfill the final scripture. When that happened, he said, it is finished to his father. And then he said this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Did all of Jesus go where his father was? No. Just one part. Just the spirit. The spirit went back to God. Why? Because Ecclesiastes tells us, the wise man of old tells us, that when you die, the spirit will go back to God who gave it. Remember Acts 7 and 59? They're about to stone Stephen to death. What an amazing picture we have in our mind's eye. And the Bible says he looked up and he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And you know what? That was all she wrote. They couldn't stand it. They took him and they took him outside and they stoned him to death. And before he died, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Because that's where one part goes. Now, when Jesus was crucified, other things happened. We'll get to that in a minute. But as we summarize the passages we talked about, the Spirit goes back to God who gave it at death. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14, the Bible says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So, what about the body? What about the body? The body goes back to the dust of the ground. The first part of Ecclesiastes 12 and 7 tells us that. So what's the body? What's the body? The body is the place where the real man lives. The place where the real man lives. 2 Peter 1, 13 through 15. Yes, I think it's right as long as I am in this tent. That's what your body is. It's a tent. The King James says a tabernacle. Watch. To stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this Tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showing me, showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And at the decease, he's going to put off his tent. What else is going to happen? Spirit's going to go back to God who gave it. That's two parts. That's two parts. But I'll tell you something. The greatest thing of all. When the body is buried... When the spirit goes back to God who gave it, time goes by. We'll get to that in a minute. But at the resurrection, we are going to get a new resurrected body. A new resurrection body. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. Listen to this. For we know that if our earthly house, that's the flesh, of this tabernacle, that's the body, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What are we going to get? We're going to get a house. We're going to get a dwelling place for one part of us. 
For if we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with, uh, with our house, which is from heaven, that's the new resurrected body, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in the tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, we're going to get something that's greater. Remember when I said that Paul said that God is powerful enough to give you a body that is right for every dwelling place? It's fit for that. The physical body that we have in this life is fit for this life. At death, the body goes back to the dust of the ground, the Bible says. The spirit, and that's also the part of us that's connected to our intellect, the spirit goes back to God who gave it. And at the point of the resurrection, at the judgment day, when the Lord comes back, we're going to get another body. Let me just say this, Psalms 90 and 10, very often quoted passage. The days of our years are three score years and ten, that's seventy. If by reason of strength they may be four score, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Now what part of man's flying away? It's not the body. The body didn't fly away. It's the spirit that goes back to God who gave it. Our bodies don't do that. So in summary, quickly, the body goes back to the dust of the ground. The spirit goes back to God who gave it. But now I want to talk about the most important part of you. And the reason it's the most important part of you is because it's the part of you that never, ever, ever dies. It is the part of you that is eternal. That is something that we need to take heed because what we do in this body, in this flesh determines where this part, the soul that never dies, that is eternal, it will tell us where that soul is going to go. It determines that. You cannot kill the soul. In fact, Matthew 10 and 28 says this, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, Paul had a, in fact, the King James says he had a straight. He was in betwixt, in between. Paul had a desire to be with the Lord. He had a desire to be away from this world. But even in the midst of all the persecution and all the things he went through, you know what he said? He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What did he mean by that? He said, to live is for the glory of Christ. In other words, if I still live and I still preach the word of God, then it's to the benefit of Christ and his church. But for me, it's gain to go. He was saying, I know where I'm going. And he said, for me, it's gain. He says, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor." Yet what I choose, I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Soul is eternal. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. It says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perishes, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. All of us that are aging, and I mean all of us that are aging, you know one of the great realities of that? Is every day, our outward man perishes. Little by little, little at a time, our outward man perishes. And there's what they call father time, and you can't sidestep father time. I'll be 50 next year, and I know that. Father time's coming. There's some folks in here that are a whole lot older than that. Father time is coming. If you live that long, the outward man perishes. But the Bible says the inward man is renewed day by day. And the only way that your, new, that your inward man is renewed day by day is through the scriptures and service to God. The inward man. You know when the Bible says bodily, bodily exercise profits little? I heard somebody say one time, see, you don't have to exercise because even the Bible says it profits little. That's not what he meant. That's not what he meant at all. What he means is the benefit from the exercise is limited to a portion of your life. The benefit. Because once you die, you have no benefit from the exercise you did in your life. But spiritual exercise, it has a benefit for eternity. Because it depends on where you're going to spend it. Isn't that great? So where does somebody go when they die? First of all, understand the terms here. Hades is defined as the place of disembodied spirits. Now remember this. What did Jesus do? Jesus was on the cross. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's the spirit part of Jesus. What did he say before that? He told this man on the cross, he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So the spirit went to God. The soul went to paradise. And we know that Joseph of Arimathea came and begged the body of Jesus and put his body after he and Nicodemus put 100 pounds of spices on the body of Jesus and they put him in the grave. Three parts. Do you know you got three parts too? And when you die, your spirit will go back to God who gave it. Your soul will go to Hades. That is one of these two places. You remember in Matthew chapter 12, they said to the Lord, they said, basically, give us a, a magic trick. Show us a sign. And he said, the only thing I'm going to show you, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly or the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus went to paradise. What else? We talked about this Wednesday. What else? When he went to paradise, it was prophetically stated, though, that Jesus Christ, he would not remain in Hades. Paradise. And his flesh, it says, the psalmist David, would not see corruption, meaning would not decay. He was raised on the third day. 
fulfilling prophecy. Now, when Jesus was on the cross and he told the thief, the thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a whole lot of talk about whether or not Jesus actually saved the man. Well, certainly he saved the man. And somebody might say, well, wait a minute. He wasn't baptized for the remission of sins. He didn't have to be because Jesus lived under the old law and the requirement of baptism for the remission of sins did not happen until Acts 2 when the church was established. Secondly, you can't contact the blood of Jesus before he shed his blood. So Jesus saved the man. Sure he did. How do I know that? The definition of the word paradise is the abode of the souls of the righteous. E.M. Zer said this, Persons who are assigned to this place will always be among those who are comforted or saved. And Jesus said that this is the place that they were going on that day, so therefore he was saved. Now, we can't talk about paradise and Tartarus without talking about the rich man and Lazarus. Because that's the place in the Bible that talks about both places and two different people going, one to each place. The Bible says that Jesus pictures a man that was a rich man that had all the good things in life. There was a beggar named Lazarus. He got the crumbs at the king's table. He got nothing. The Bible says they're, they're both going to die. The rich man, it says, he died and was buried. Not Lazarus. You know what happened to Lazarus when he died? He was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I don't know about you. I like what Joe Heisel said about 15 years ago one time. I heard him say this. He said, I can't help but think that there's an angel when I cross over. Somehow, some way, and I'm not going to be afraid. And when I draw my final breath and my spirit goes back to God who gave it, there's going to be someone there. There's going to be someone there that will help me across the chilly waters of Jordan, the chilly waters of death, and I will not be afraid. Isn't that great? Lazarus had a terrible life. Maybe you've had great challenges in your life. I'm going to tell you, he had a lousy life. But you know what? The Bible says he was taken to Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom is a phrase that was among the Jews to signify the paradise of God. Now, some people argue, well, wait a minute. We, we kind of talked about this Wednesday a little bit. But when the rich man looked across the great gulf that was fixed between paradise and Tartarus, the rich man saw Lazarus at Abraham's bosom. He said, send Lazarus that he might dip his finger in water and touch it to my tongue, for I perish with this terrible, terrible thirst. He looked up and tormented said. So the question is, what were his eyes and what were his tongue? And I made the statement a couple weeks ago, not these eyes. These eyes were in the ground and not this tongue. This tongue was in the ground because that was in the body. But listen, the only part of a human being that has feeling is the inner man. That's right. When the body and the soul are united, the soul exercises itself 
through the body as a vehicle because the body itself has no feeling. Let me prove that to you. Have you ever had a surgery? They put you under anesthetic and they put you out and you are unconscious. They don't give you anything for the pain while you're unconscious. They give you something for the pain when you are conscious afterwards. And man, you want that painkiller. Not when they're out. You know why? The body feels nothing without the inner man. The body feels nothing without the spirit. If the body could feel, then people under anesthetic would wince in pain from the surgery they were going through. And people that have died, the body would also wince in pain when they would have all manner of things done to them. But it doesn't. So what I'm saying is, I'm saying... When this man, this rich man, was in Tartarus in torment, he could be in torment. Why? Because what feels is the inner man. That's what has feeling. Something else, though. We learned something else about the intermediate state. Verse 25 of that text. It's an indication that those that are in the intermediate state will be able to recall experiences on earth. Verse 26 says that there was a great gulf, an open chasm, says Mr. Thayer. A great interval you can't pass over. Verses 27 through 31, listen to this. It indicates that no communication ever took place between men on earth and men that have died. But one more thing. Even those that have been permitted to rise from the dead in the scriptures. And there are many occasions we could talk about of someone that was raised from the dead. Have you ever stopped to consider this? There's not one passage, not one speck of evidence that shows that they brought information from the other world into this world. So anybody that says they died, went away, got information and came back to life. Folks, I don't know what they got, but they didn't get that. They didn't go to another world, get information, die, go to another world, and come back. The only one that had information was Paul. He was given a view up into the third heaven, and what does it say? He saw things and he heard things that a man should not hear or see. What did Paul get? He got a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to buffet him. Keep his feet on the ground. It was so awful. He said, please remove it. You know what God said? No. What the Lord said? No. My grace is sufficient for you. So, at the end of, at the end of time and judgment, those that are in paradise will be saved. Those that are in Tartarus will be lost. But I just want to talk about one final thing about the saved. Some very encouraging things. The saved are going to get or receive a resurrected body. Now remember, we said in Hades, which is paradise in Tartarus, that is defined by Thayer as the land of disembodied spirits. That's a spirit without the body. So that tells me that my soul is in a place that is saved in paradise Prayerfully, that happens. That's where I want to go. Dedicating my life to it. You too, right? That's where I want to go. 
But at the resurrection, something's going to happen great. Watch this. Ephesians, or Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And as it is appointed for men to die, how many times? Once. But after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart for sin for salvation. So that's talking about the judgment, the resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. That's the physical body. It's raised in incorruption. That body is a spiritual body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The phrase raised in glory, according to Mr. Thayer, means this. To gain a more excellent body. That tells me that at the resurrection, I'm going to get an excellent body. And that excellent body is going to be fit for the environment of heaven. Isn't that great? What's it going to be like? 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that's at the judgment, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So for all those that doubt the resurrection, why in the world would you want to do that? I've been sick before. You've been sick before. You've got things wrong with you. I'm going to tell you something. The resurrected body won't need a wheelchair. It won't need crutches. It won't need any other aids at all. We're created in the image of God, the image of our creator. You know what's even greater? Whatever that body is that we don't have yet that we're going to get at the judgment, at the resurrection, it's going to be like Christ. That's great stuff. And it's a place in heaven where there is no need for any artificial light. Why? Because the Lord is the light. We're going to ever be with the Lord. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.